Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. If you want to use one of the, the pews that are in the Bible, it's page 1,000 <laughs> pews in the Bible. Sorry. Okay. You don't let me away with anything, so you don't. Bibles in the pews, yeah. 1,207, but the reading's going to be from 1,208. Four weeks ago tonight, which is the 15th of December, we looked at chapter 9, and, and so we're simply picking up from where we left off in our, our Elevated Jesus series. Uh, just as a matter of how many people were at church on the last Sunday morning of 2019? Now, I know that's a couple weeks ago, but how many people were at church on the last Sunday morning of 2019? Okay, because at that service, I actually shared three New Year resolutions for Windsor based on Hebrews chapter 10 and verses uh, 19 through to 25. And so let, let me just read those. We're not going to read those tonight or I'm going to look at those tonight in any great detail, but let me just remind you what I shared on that Sunday morning. So here is Hebrews 10, 22. I'm just going to read from to 25. It's on the screen. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And three times, and I drew attention to this, three times in those verses, we, we come across the phrase, let us. And then we're instructed by the writer of Hebrews to do something or to not do something. And so the three things are, let us draw near to God. That's verse 22. Then verse 23, let us hold unswervingly or let us hold tightly to the hope that we profess. And then verses 24 and 25, let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. Let us consider how we may not stop meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, and let us be encouragers of one another. And so the three New Year resolution or words that I suggested out of these were, okay, those that were there, give me them again. Gravitate, communicate, and motivate. There they are. Gravitate, communicate, and motivate. Gravitate closer to God in 2020. Communicate Jesus better in 2020. The Jesus we profess our hope. And then motivate each other more intentionally in 2020. And I, I hope those three words are going to be important to each of us this year. And as I also shared that morning, they fit into and they connect with this triangle that we often use at Windsor to remind us how we're supposed to live as Christians, because we are meant to live up, in, and out. Up in relationship with God, in in relationship with one another, and then out in terms of our relationship with our neighbor. Up, in, and out. And so up, let us draw near to God, let us gravitate. In, let us consider how we may spur one another on and not stop meeting together. Uh, let us motivate, and then out, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess that we communicate uh, Jesus to our, our neighbors beyond these walls. Now, those instructions from the writer of Hebrews to his original recipients of this letter, they were designed and intended to keep them heading in the right direction. 
That was why he was writing to them. He wanted them to keep heading in the right direction to prevent them from drifting away, to, from drifting back to an old way of life and living. And he was anxious that they would stay on course, that they would, is that that last song, the penultimate song we sang a moment ago, you know, when my races run. He wanted them to continue running right to the very end. And so throughout this letter, he's been encouraging and urging his readers to hold on, to endure, don't pack it in. And so in, in the next section of his letter, immediately after those let us encouragements, he issues a warning. So he's given us these three let us do, and then he issues a warning. And it's a very fearful and a solemn warning. If you were here this morning, I, I kind of touched on it. There are five so-called warning passages in the book of Hebrews, but this one from verses 26 to 31, this one is quite possibly the most sobering and haunting of them all. And it's a warning against abandoning your faith. It's a warning against apostasy. It's, it's a warning against renouncing your beliefs. And so, please, if you can and you're able, let's stand for the public reading of God's, at times, incredibly serious word. It's always serious, I know, but this is incredibly serious, this. So verse 26, remember, we've just come out of this part where he's been encouraging his readers a bit with those lettuces. 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning, after we have received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered law along with those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And but, my righteousness, but by my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Please uh, take a seat. Um, 
I don't know if I conveyed as, as I read, but it is such a sobering passage of Scripture. And, and I, I reckon and I, I realize lots of us have probably many questions about a lot of what is written there. And, and therefore, in some ways, it's very tempting to avoid a text like that. But we can't, although I need to tread very carefully. And, and I hope I do that. And I do it with integrity. Now remember, this, this letter is addressed to those who have professed faith. This letter is addressed to those who describe themselves as Christians. But the writer identifies some of them who deliberately keep on sinning, despite the fact that at one time they have embraced the truth. That's what he says. And as he calls them out, he highlights the, the genuinely distressing perils and consequences of such behavior and actions. He says there are three. He says for people like this, there is no sacrifice for sins left. And the only two things that are coming your direction, if you deliberately keep on sinning, even though at one point you embrace the truth, but the only two things that are now coming your direction are a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume you. And those are grim words. Now let's be very clear about something. Christians still sin. And I doubt any of us here who claim to be Christians would argue with that. And in fact, as the Apostle John states, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. So Christians still sin. We still mess up. I still mess up from time to time. We still stumble at points along the journey. We still give in to temptation in weaker moments. Like the Apostle Paul, there are things that we wish we never did, and yet we still do. And also like the Apostle Paul, there are things that we know we should be doing, and yet we keep overlook, overlooking doing them. We still need, as Christians, to confess our sins. And as we gather around the Lord's table on a weekly basis at Windsor, and we did it this morning, we paused. And Sarah invited us as Christians to confess our sins before we ate and drank together. We still need to throw off the sin that so easily entangles us, as this writer will go on to say in a couple of chapters' time. Throw off, and again, writing to Christians, throw off the sin that so easily entangles you. None of us, none of us live a sin-free life, and no genuine Christian would claim to. But that is not who the writer of Hebrews is addressing here or warning against. The person that he is referring to sins deliberately and keeps on doing it. So we're referring to a kind of willful, constant, continual course of action. 
This is the person who knows that they are meant to deny self and follow Christ on a daily basis, but instead they constantly and regularly live for themselves behind a veneer of Christian faith. Now, the person that refuses to submit and surrender to the Lordship of Christ in every area of their lives, they know what the Word of God teaches Because the writer here says they have received the knowledge of the truth. So they know what the Word of God teaches. But their daily choices and decisions, their attitude and their actions completely and totally contradict it time after time after time. And quite frankly, they don't care. These are the kind of people who who somehow think that at some point they got a ticket to heaven, but now they can live as they like. They can live for self, and no matter what they do, they're going to be sorted in the end. And so they keep on sinning. And yes, genuine Christians still sin, but it is a burden that inflicts them. These people still sin, and it's a pleasure that delights them. And the writer of Hebrews challenges this. And he warns against continuing to walk down that particular pathway, which he says ultimately leads to destruction. And so he teases it out further. And he identifies three markers of this kind of person. Because he wants to make sure that nobody is left in any doubt of the kind of behavior and choices that indicate or reveal that this is what or who he's talking about. I mean, if anyone wasn't clear about what it means to deliberately keep on sinning, they certainly will be clear as he finishes here. If anyone wants to know what is meant by apostasy, what does it mean to abandon your faith? What does it mean to renounce your beliefs? Here are three key characteristics. Here, if you like, are three marks of apostasy. And again, it's serious. And so number one, you trample the Son of God underfoot. Number two, you treat or you regard the blood of Jesus that was shed for you as profane or as unholy. And number three, you insult the Holy Spirit. So let's take each of those in turn. So number one. Now notice with me the title for Jesus that the writer here uses. Son of God. You trampled the Son of God Underfoot. Now, the Son of God is a, is a title, it's a designation that emphasizes, one of the things it emphasizes, not the entire thing it emphasizes, but one of the things it emphasizes is the fact and the reality that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus should be Lord of our lives and over our life. And so a trampling of the Son of God underfoot means a refusal to acknowledge that. It's a refusal to bow the knee, to submit and surrender every area of our lives to the Lordship of Christ. It's where we want to retain authority and control. It's where we want to stay in the driving seat. It's where we want to call the shots every single time and we rarely or never refer to Jesus. Jesus as Savior, great. Jesus as Lord, not so great. But he's got to be both and. Can't be either or. So if we keep doing life my way as opposed to his way, 
And according to the writer here is, we trample the Son of God. We trample Jesus as Lord underfoot. The second thing, the second mark of apostasy, if you like, is you regard the blood of the covenant. Now get this bit. You regard the blood of the covenant that sanctified you. You regard the blood of the covenant that made you holy. You regard it as profane, as unholy. Now, it's almost hard to believe anyone would or could do that. But clearly it happened. In the previous chapter, in chapter 9, if you were here four weeks ago, you'll remember that the writer has been going out of his way to emphasize the importance of the blood of Jesus. That was a chapter which emphasized over and over again the importance of the shed blood of Jesus, the blood of the new covenant, that once for all sacrifice for our sins. And in that chapter, he uses the familiar phrase that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so to treat the blood of Jesus as unholy, to profane, it literally means to not believe in its forgiving ability and strength. It's to call into question the forgiving, purifying, sanctifying, wonder-working power of the blood. Do that. Go there at any level, in any sense. And you have chosen to go in a whole other direction than what you were called to go into. It's a mark of apostasy where you treat the blood of Jesus that sanctified you, that made you holy when you treat it as profane. And then finally, number three, and and possibly the most serious mark of apostasy is where you disparage, you insult. And again, did you notice? You insult not just the Holy Spirit, But the writer says you insult the Holy Spirit of grace. And this is similar to that other dreaded phrase of Jesus about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And in this context, in the Hebrews 10 context, it's different in the the context Jesus uses, but in in the Hebrews 10 context, whenever somebody tramples the Son of God underfoot, whenever somebody profanes His blood that was shed for the forgiveness of their sins, at that point, and with that ongoing rejection of Jesus in full swing, the Holy Spirit is also rejected. The Holy Spirit is also outraged. The Holy Spirit is also dispelled and barred. Whenever we reject, whenever we trample the Son of God underfoot, whenever we profane the blood of Jesus that has sanctified us, whenever we call it into question, then we are also rejecting the Holy Spirit of grace. And so these are grave warnings that the writer raises. And, and almost to emphasize the fact, he, he, he finishes this short, terse, blunt section with that chilling phrase, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Deliberately keep on sinning, even though you know the truth. This is what he's saying. Deliberately keep on sinning, even though you have embraced, you have knowledge of the truth. 
continue to reject Jesus as Lord. Disrespect the blood of Jesus. Insult the Holy Spirit. And the horror of what lies ahead doesn't bear thinking about. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God if you deliberately go down this path even though you know so much more. And so the author of Hebrews pulls no punches. But remember, what is his heart's desire in all of this? His heart's desire is to elevate Jesus, is to encourage his readers, those first century believers, don't drift, don't lose your way, don't go back. And so having encouraged them by saying, let us, you know, let us draw near to God and let us spur one another on. And let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. He then says, having encouraged them, he warns them against abandoning their faith and the grim perils of that and the markers of that. And as he brings this little part of his teaching, and it is strong teaching, but as he brings it to an end, here is what he says. He says, readers, believers, fellow Christians, I want you to persevere. I want you to endure even though it is tough and even though you're up against it and even though you are tempted to pack it in. I want you to persevere. And as he encourages them down this road, he actually gets them to think back and he wants them to remember how did you used to handle these challenges? See, when you first came to faith, look at verse 32, when you first received the light. So these are people that have received the light. He says, listen, how did you used to handle those challenges? Well, to start with, you were upfront about your faith. You used to go public with your faith. You used to profess Jesus and you weren't ashamed of it. Even though you got abused, even though you got mistreated, you went public with your faith. You were upfront about it. And even when other Christians, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, whenever they got it in the neck, whenever they were ridiculed, whenever they were insulted for their faith, you shared in their sufferings. It mattered to you. When one part of the body hurt, they, you hurt. Plus, when other Christians were thrown into jail because of their faith, you were kind to them. This is how it used to be. And then the final thing he says, and this is huge, he says, I want you to remember that big eternal perspective. Because back there, because although you've lost lots of stuff, and he says, you have, you've had them confiscated. Material possessions have been taken from you. But you know what? It used to be that you handled that with joy. And how did you handle that with joy? Why could you handle that with joy? End of verse 34. Because you knew that you had something better. Something that would last forever. And so as one commentator puts it, those believers, he says, understood that better possessions were in store for those who persevered in the midst of persecution so they continued to align with Christ even when it cost them in earthly matters. You see, these believers knew at one point, and this is what he wants them to remember, at one point they knew, to use the language of Jesus, that they had treasure stored up in heaven that nobody and nothing could steal or destroy. They had enduring treasure, lasting treasure, 
And so the writer of Hebrews takes them back in their mind's eye to that time and he urges them to remember those parts of their story. Remember when you used to go public with your faith. Remember when you used to be proud of the fact that you were a Christian. Even though you got ridiculed and abused for it. And remember the fact that even when others were ridiculed and abused, you shared in their sufferings. You were kind to them when they were thrown in prison. And you realized that you had an incredible future ahead of you. And so persevere. You need to persevere, he says in verse 36. You need to keep going. And what does that mean? What does it look like? Because again, what does, that, what does that actually mean on the ground? Well, look what it says. You need to persevere in doing the will of God. That's what it looks like. And what does that mean? It looks like obedient faithfulness. That's what it means to do the will of God obedient faithfulness, perseverance, like it was Eugene Peterson who coined it like this, perseverance is a long obedience in the same direction. That's what it means to persevere. And then just as the writer brings this little bit to a close, he injects an even longer term reminder because he refers to the certainty of the future advent, second advent. He says, listen, Jesus is coming again. And he uses the phrase, in a little while. Jesus is coming again in a little while. And you see, at that point, you will receive all that you have been promised. So press on. Don't draw back. And just as he closed, if they needed another indication of the seriousness of this all, he finishes with this. He says, but we do not belong to those who shrink back. So there are those who do. We do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed. But to those who have faith and are saved. Turning back is an unthinkable option. And so he urges them to endure. And if you do endure, what's the result? You will have faith like the incredible list of people he's then about to name. Because those of you who know the book of Hebrews will know that after chapter 10 comes chapter 11, that hall of fame, that hall of faith fame. And so he says, listen, don't turn back. Endure. Because then you can have the kind of faith that the people I'm about to tell you about had, who never turned back. And so Hebrews 10, 26 to 31 in particular, but right through to 39, is a warning passage. It's one of the five. And it is aimed to keep the believer from spiritual complacency and apostasy. And we need to hear and heed the warning. And on one level, if you're wondering, well, how do you avoid those mistakes? I hear all of those, but how do you avoid those mistakes? Well, let me go back to this. You just draw nearer and nearer to God. You just keep motivating one another to love and good deeds. You just keep meeting together. Don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And you just keep encouraging one another. Plus, you go public with your faith. You share Jesus. You communicate Jesus in word and deed. And that way, you will persevere 
that long obedience in the same direction.